episode 77, Ship Without a Rudder. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a March 25th, 2009 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. Today, the Kansas River is hardly an artery of merchant traffic. But 150 years ago, it was the only way to reach destinations out west. To navigate this river, though, you had to have the right equipment. Join Assistant Director Rebecca Martin and me as we examine a keelboat oar used on the Kansas River in the 1820s. Did honest pioneer merchants civilizing the American West use these keelboats? Or did they belong to a thuggish clan of Frenchmen with connections to the Astor Fur Trading Empire? Then, the Kansas Historical Society embraces Web 2.0 by distributing content on multimedia digital platforms. Basically, we're tweeting and sending out e-newsletters. Find out how to get on board and win some free stuff. Finally, did William Allen White and the Birdman of Alcatraz share a love of bird watching? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, ship without a rudder. Good afternoon, Rebecca. Hi, Merle. Today we're going to talk about a giant wooden oar, which uh, sounds a little lame, but turns out the oar... Uh, is connected to a tale of empire-building, high fashion, and possibly government corruption on the American frontier. Um, The oar is basically a long wooden pole that mounts on the back of a boat. Um, The back portion uh, of the oar kind of dips down um, uh, and creates a horizontal blade in the water. For steering the boat. Exactly. That's why it's called a steering oar. Yeah, and it's and it is called a steering oar, and that's different than a rudder. Mm-hmm. I mean, not a big difference, but you know, uh-huh. there's a difference. Um, and a steering oar is used on a keelboat. What is a keelboat? Uh, well, picture a really large canoe with pointed ends, about let's say about seventy feet long, maybe ten feet wide, and it's decked over across the top. And on the deck, there usually was a little cabin or some sort of a shelter so that people could take shelter from the weather. And under the deck, there would be the the canoe portion of the boat or the keel of the boat would be loaded with goods. Um, If the boat was, since we're talking about the fur trade today, um, if the boat was going, uh, let's say, um, out from a big city, it would be loaded with supplies that the uh, Native Americans would want, like axes, ammunition, and so on. If it was coming back from a tribal settlement, it would be loaded with furs. Why would you? Why, why not just a regular boat on on um, this? This one was used on the Kansas River. Why yeah. not just a regular boat? Uh, well, because in the West, our rivers tend to be extremely shallow. In fact, mostly sand most <laughs> of the year, except after a big rainstorm. Um, so a keelboat was about the only way you could get up and down the river. And we're talking about 
the 1820s, teens, and earlier here, there were no roads, there were no railroads, there weren't steamboats, and even if there had been, they couldn't navigate up the Kansas River for much of the year. Mm -hmm. um, so you just were pretty limited in how you were going to transport goods around, and a keelboat was your option, or one of your few options. And, and how were you powering a keelboat? <laughs> were, were, yeah. were you setting sails? Did you have people <laughs> down did. in the canoe portion with uh, oars? They had a couple of different ways they could do it. The, the really awful thing is that a keelboat, as with most of these trader boats at this time, they were great when you were floating downstream. Mm -hmm. But getting them upstream was a real challenge, and they had row oar locks so that they could actually use a regular oar to row up the river. Um, but a lot of them would use poles so that you would have uh, a crew, and the crew would walk on the outside edges of the deck, push the pole into the mud, and just walk along the deck. As And can you imagine going up river that way? Uh, another way they would do it is they would pull themselves along with um, by grabbing tree branches along the bank. In 1897, construction workers discovered this particular ore while building a bridge over the Kansas River. How old is this ore? And what was it doing in what is present-day Topeka? Mm -hmm. Well, this was quite a while before Topeka actually appeared, so um, <clears throat> it was just that form of transport. It was, it was used as a form of transportation to get upriver. Um, there were no roads, um, and, to, and we're talking about the area that's part of the traditional Kansas tribal lands. Um, so if you were going to be a trader and you were trading with the Kansas, the way to get the goods upriver was by keelboat or get the goods to the Kansas villages was upriver and by keelboat. So we have to presume that that's what happened here. The, at this time, too, the Kaw Indians were very active participants in the fur trade, as I've alluded to before. The fur trade um, was something that went on for two centuries, I believe. Mm -hmm. And uh, th this is in the days before Gore-Tex or any of those, you know, nice high-tech fabrics that would keep you warm and right. dry. Which some claim still do not even work as well <laughs> yeah. as some of the furs that were traded 200 the, years ago. That makes a lot of sense. So if you're out, well, it's like, you know, anybody living above the Arctic Circle, skins are going to keep you really a lot warmer than uh, most of what's available out there. And the really big um, engine of the fur trade that everybody knows about is the beaver hats. You know, the, every, the beaver hats were the rage for over a century. Everybody had to have a beaver hat. Mm -hmm. um, so. A lot of these fur traders were out in this region and parts further west decimating the beaver population and making a lot of money. Poor um, beavers. Yeah, poor beavers. But, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't want, you know, we don't want to make it sound like fur trade and beaver hats were like a fringe business. Because fur trade is kind of a fringe business today. You know, there's not really today, a lot. Of, but, but, to, but in the 1700s and early 1800s i mean that was that was a driving force in mm -hmm. western settlement was fur trade it that was, was huge money yeah it was huge money and um there was a lot of competition for um, pockets of the fur trade. I mean, exclusive licenses with different tribes were hotly contested. And there were certain dynasties, I think you could say, that were created um, in, 
during this era, and one of them was John Jacob Astor, mm -hmm. who founded the American Fur Company, and I think he still shows up on the world's richest people ever. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, you have to factor in the difference in the dollar's value. But he made a killing in the fur trade. Um, so yeah, it, it was a huge business. No one can be certain uh, where the ore originally came from, but during the fur trading period, there was pretty much only one family running keelboats west of the mm -hmm. Mississippi. Who was the uh, Chateau family? Am I saying? Chateau. Chateau. Who was the Chateau family, and how did they become so influential in the American West? Well, they started early. Um, there were several generations in the family, um, and they began like in the 1760s or so, starting to make inroads um, into, um, well, the political influence. And, and in those days, this was owned by Spain. Well, they had exclusive licensing with Spain over certain tribes. They became, um, well, they, they just built their own little monopoly with the Osage tribe, which was living at that time in parts of Missouri and Kansas. They actually lived with the tribe, they spoke the language, they learned their customs, and they really infiltrated, essentially. Mm -hmm. Some of them intermarried um, uh, or took Indian wives as well as their, their white their French wives. Um, there aren't, weren't that many white people out on the plains, and um, if you're going to deal with somebody, you might as well deal with somebody who speaks your language and who's lived with you and you feel like you can trust them. And so that's how the Shoto started, that whole dynasty, and it just continued over generations. And um, later they got the exclusive contract for the fur trade with the Kansa tribe, uh, who was living in this area where we're speaking today around Topeka. Um, <clears throat> and that continued for years. And the Shotos had it's like three or four generations. They had so much power and influence that um, they were associated with some of the people that we think of today as just icons of the American West. Um, Meriwether Lewis and um, William Clark witnessed the wedding of the the Shoto family patriarch. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just amazing. You go so through this. So Lewis and Clark were at his wedding. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and he knew Fremont, didn't he? They knew the Fremont. The explorer well, slash presidential yeah, candidate. Because they had the Shotos had trading posts all over this part of of the country, and uh, you know you have to outfit your exploration somewhere. So the big explorer Fremont who had Kit Carson, another big name, um, on one of his expeditions, uh, outfitted with the Shoto's trading posts. Uh, oh, uh, they, one of the, they experimented uh, with steamboats up the Missouri River. Now, you, you couldn't do that very easily up the Cobb, but uh, the Shoto's had a really early steamboat go up the Missouri River. And on one of those Missouri, on one of those early trips of the steamboat, George Catlin, the artist, was along with Pierre nice. Shoto. So, yeah, they knew so many interesting people. Daniel Boone's son. I could go on and on. I'll stop. Well, but, and Daniel Boone's like, he's kind of a guy that's connected pretty heavily to Kansas City. And the, mm -hmm. the, the Shoto, they started, I mean, they're kind of a founding father in St. Louis, St. Louis, right? And then yeah. they expanded into Kansas City as their fur trading yeah. business pushed west. They had a huge warehouse in Kansas City that at any given time was packed with, you know, thousands of dollars worth of pelts. And um, so, and they were a little shady too, which is like <laughs> well, the, requ the requisite. <clears throat> you gotta have your you gotta be a shady family business with a warehouse in Kansas City. That's kind of the you know <laughs> throughout the that's ages. how you get a monopoly, isn't it? I mean, uh, <laughs> this ore may have been lost while members of the Shoto family were trading with the Kanza Indians near Topeka in the 1830s. Mm -hmm. um, why would Kanza Indians even be interested in trading with these guys? What what you know what were they getting out of it? 
Well, um, they got, it was very interesting that the Indians, of course, they, they got somebody who spoke the language and, and knew them quite well. And the Kanza and the Osage were related tribes, essentially. So the long history that the Shotos had with the Osages benefited them with the Kanza. Also, there weren't that many people who were willing to actually come to the tribes and trade with them. And that was a big sticking point for the tribes because um, they're, they're having to go through dangerous territory. You know, there were warring tribes. If you had to travel 200 miles to get to a place where you could do trade, all along that journey, you risked hardship, death, and attacks. Um, so it was a big plus if you could find a trader who was willing to haul that keelboat loaded with everything you wanted, 15 miles Pull a day. Branch by branch. Yeah, branch by bloody branch, and come to you and do business with you. Uh, we don't see many keelboats on the Kansas River today. In fact, I have never seen one on the <laughs> Kansas River. Um, in fact, besides uh, besides some trash, you really don't see much at all on no. that river. What <laughs> happened? Uh, well, steamboats. Steamboats in the first case. Um, you can take a steamboat up the Kaw River, the Kansas River, when it's really wet out. And that is basically two seasons out of the year. <laughs> The spring and the fall. And if it's a good fall, it's wet. So um, at some points out of the year, you can just walk up the you Kansas can, River. You could. You could walk from sandbar. You could wade. Right? <laughs> yeah. So when when you got good roads and you got railroads and steamboats up the Missouri, you know, all those things combined to just put an end to the keelboat business. And then really, by the time the Shotos um, came out this far west, the fur trade was starting to end. The tastes in Europe had changed. They didn't want furs so much anymore. No more beaver hats. No more beaver hats. The beaver was getting pretty much played out anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so the fur trade kind of died a natural death, and keelboats uh, just did too. All right, one last question, Rebecca. Um, what do you think happened to that one guy that was on this boat that dropped the steering oar in the water? I'd imagine that created some problems. Um, what do you think happened to that guy? Well, I think maybe they keel hauled him. You know what that is? That's when they. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> that that's an old form of punishment for sailors. They would tie a rope around them, throw them over one side of the. Well, they actually loop a rope around the boat with them tied to it, and they would throw them off one side of the boat and then drag them under the boat and come back up the other side. Oh, yeah, it was pretty punishing, apparently, if you got scraped on barnacles. Although, in the Kansas River, you'd probably just get a mouthful of sand if you could even make it under the boat <laughs> at all. If you could make it under the boat without <laughs> getting buried in sand. Yeah, get bit by yeah. a catfish. Well, it's his own fault for dropping the one the one steering oar in the well, water. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That boat may still be out in the ocean somewhere, <laughs> veering around with no, no steering mechanism on it. All right, Rebecca. Well, thanks for telling us about the Shoto family, and thanks for telling us about the steering oar. They said, come sail away, come sail away, come sail away with me. If you would like to see images of the ore that navigated the mighty Kansas and was then dropped to the bottom, just go to our website, kshs.org, and click on the podcast icon. Next, we sit down with Information Officer Teresa Jenkins as she tells us how to subscribe to the Historical Society's e-newsletter. Good morning, Teresa. Good morning. And today we are going to talk about the Historical Society's e-newsletter. 
Um, the Kansas Historical Society keeps the public informed through uh, media platforms that range from published journals to kids' magazines. Now the society is adapting to a new generation of history consumers by producing the e-newsletter. Uh, Teresa, what is an e-newsletter and what does it tell us? An e-newsletter, in our case, is an email. It's a fancy email if you can read e HTML on your email browser. Uh, it has pictures, it has fancy fonts, colors, and, and it makes it look like a much more appealing newsletter. But we also publish our e-newsletter in text only, so if you can't get all the fancy graphics, you can just read uh, Just the Facts Man. And a, an e-newsletter, I mean, it's just, it's like your basic newsletter, right? It's just got information about what the agency is doing um, and about upcoming events, correct? It does. We try to include what's happening not just here in Topeka at the Historical Society and the museum, but also at all of our state historic sites. And if there are other things that are history-related happening in the state or nationally, we include a little bit about that, too. The best part about e-newsletters in general, though, is that... Um, um, they're pretty, you don't have to um, pay any cost to, to, to receive them. But what's really great is um, there'll, be, there'll be links all over them. So if there's something you're interested in and you want to know more information, you can click on the link and it gives you much more information, as opposed to your standard written e-newsletter. That's right. We pack our e-newsletters with links, maybe too many at times, but I really feel like making that information very accessible is important. Uh, we try to keep the newsletter itself brief so that you get just the facts, and you can always click on those links to find out more details if you're interested. How often is the e-newsletter published? Well, we actually have two. We have one for just the general public, maybe history buffs or, or people who like to travel to different historic sites. Uh, that is published every other month. And then in the offsetting months, we have an e-news that's just for teachers. Is there information contained in the e-newsletter that you can't find anywhere else? Yes, there is. Aha! Aha. <laughs> there is a little hidden prize if you scroll all the way down. I know I'm giving away a secret here, but if you scroll all the way down to the bottom, after having read every single article in the e-newsletter, you will find a coupon for free admission to the Kansas Museum of History. Nice. So how do our listeners, or how does the general public, what's the best way to subscribe to the history? Historical Society's e-newsletter? Well, for most people, I'd say just go to our homepage, kshs.org, click on subscribe, and you can find the two different e-news uh, subscription links, the one for teachers and the one for the general public. But for our Cool Things podcast listeners, I want to make a special offer, Merle. That's right, a special offer so just like special, for our podcast listeners. Insider jewels and gems. If they will send me an email, and I'm going to share my email, it is T... Jenkins, J-E-N-K-I-N-S, at kshs.org. Send me an email. Put cool things in the subject line. And make sure you include your mailing address. Not only will I sign you up for the e-news, I will also send you a copy of our most recent issue of Reflections Magazine for free. Right. So no charge for either one of them. You just no want to charge. include them. Include them on our e-newsletter. I mean, there is advantage for us. The more people we get on our e-newsletter, the bigger, the more people we can get our message out to. That's right. Right now and, and over the long term, finances, you know, state budgets, it's an issue. It's a hot topic in the news right now. Our 
part of our agency is really charged with trying to do the most with the least to get the word out, uh, to drive up attendance at the sites. It's hard to do it with very little money. This is a great way. We're also using some social media techniques. We've started a Twitter account for people who want to follow Kansas History Day, nice. and we'll probably expand that into some more some more topics and we have a facebook presence so come come be our friends mm-hmm. we'll sign up for the special to get subscribed to uh, the e-newsletter and then when you do receive your first edition forward it on to friends and family so they can subscribe as well and now it's time for another round of six degrees of william allen white Joining me today, as usual, is Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. And Information Officer Teresa Jenkins. Hello. This week, we head to The Rock as we connect William Allen White to Franklin Stroud, uh, also known as the Birdman of Alcatraz. Um, And first, I'm just going to give you a little background on the island prison of Alcatraz and a little bit on Mr. Stroud. Uh, The island of Alcatraz was first discovered by the Spanish in 1775 and named La (laughs) Isle... Well, let's just say it was named the Island of the Pelicans. (laughs) So that's where Alcatraz comes from. It's a a Spanish word for pelicans. It served as a military fort for a while, um, and it is also home to the oldest lighthouse on the West Coast. And for a short time, the island was actually owned by explorer John Fremont. Starting in the 1860s, this isolated island became a prison until that remained open until 1963. It housed characters like Al Capone and our boy Franklin Stroud. Due to its isolation in the San Francisco Bay, which apparently is is a uh, can have some pretty cool waters, um, and which are apparently shark infested, <laughs> um, no one has ever escaped Alcatraz, though not from lack of trying. There's been 14 unsuccessful attempts, and I believe two people tried it twice. (laughs) Um, And now on to Franklin Stroud. In 1909, Stroud was convicted uh, for killing his prostitute girlfriend's lover. Uh, He was sent to an Alaskan prison, later transferred to Leavenworth, Kansas, and then to Alcatraz. While at Leavenworth, Stroud became famous for raising birds, primarily canaries, um, because at the time, this was kind of seen as a measure of rehabilitation. He raised over 300 birds and wrote two books about birds while he was at Leavenworth. Um, busy guy. <laughs> busy guy. Well, what else are you going to do? Oh, that's you true. That is, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Teresa, so I believe uh, you have come up with some solutions, which I'm actually going to read one of your solutions just, you know, because you did such a good job. I'll read mine, then you can read yours. Sounds good. Okay, um, so we'll start out. While serving his time at Leavenworth, Robert Stroud killed guard Andrew Turner on March 26, 1916. After a series of trials, he was sentenced to death by hanging, which I believe uh, he was actually sentenced and then acquitted, or not acquitted, but um, uh, issued a stay of execution, sentenced again, issued another stay. It was a long, vicious cycle. Um, Stroud's mother, Elizabeth, appealed to President Woodrow Wilson for her son's life. President Woodrow Wilson stopped the execution, and Stroud's sentence was commuted to life in prison. Although he was not one of the five U.S. presidents to visit White at his Emporia home, uh, which, you know, apparently they all slept on the same bed in White's house. Not at the same time. Exactly. Thank exactly. Uh, Woodrow Wilson and White, they did know each other well enough that White wrote a biography about Wilson. 
Wilson appointed White as a delegate to a Russian World War I conference, and the New York Times wrote that White, quote, was chosen apparently as a hard-headed American with a great capacity for getting on well with all comers. Well, I guess, very appropriate. I guess that's a very New York way of saying he's a pretty good guy. Um, all right, uh, Teresa, you want to read your solution? I do. For those of you who are not big history buffs but enjoy listening to our podcast anyway, maybe you're fans of imdb.com, the Internet Movie Database, and you'll enjoy this one. Art Carney portrayed Robert Stroud in the 1980 TV movie Alcatraz, the whole shocking story. Sorry, I missed that one. <laughs> Earlier, Carney had had a role in the 1972 NBC series The Snoop Sisters, which told the story of a pair of elderly crime-fighting mystery writers. Think uh, like Murder, She Wrote times right. two. Right. It was a classic. <laughs> Sorry, I missed that too. After Ed Flanders, who would later star in the popular series St. Elsewhere, was also in the Snoop Sisters cast. And five years later, Flanders played William Allen White in the TV movie Mary White. So there's your connection. Well, there you go. Oh, nice. There you go. Nicely done. Thank you. Good job, Teresa. All right, Nikayla, you want to give us a solution for the next episode? I'll give you the challenge, but I won't. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, you might as well give us a <laughs> solution, too. Why not? Okay. Um, in the next episode, we celebrate the opening of baseball season by connecting William Allen White to Hank Aaron. This Hall of Famer set the record for most career home runs, which he held until 2007 when it was broke by Barry Bonds. Or was it? Or was it? Asterisk. Since Bonds may have been using steroids, <laughs> as apparently most people in baseball do, many claim that Aaron still holds the record. So, if you think you can connect William Allawhite to a man who sure knows how to swing a bat, just send your solution to podcasts at kshs.org. That is podcast with an S. That concludes episode 77, Ship Without a Rudder. If you enjoyed this episode or found it incredibly lame, we would like to hear from you. Please go to our iTunes page and post a comment. You'll find us under Cool Things in the Collection, Kansas Museum of History. Or complete a survey on our website at kshs.org by clicking on Podcast and scrolling to the bottom of the page. Come back in two weeks when curator Blair Tarr examines Dryden pottery. Following World War II, Jim Dryden used his GI Bill to learn how to make pottery, and he did it using what some thought was the worthless soil of central Kansas. Find out how Dryden revolutionized the tourist trinket business with his tiny creations. This podcast has been a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Ancient.